I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You start getting advice from uh, people that want to see you viable as like a mainstream product. You know, the stories that I'm trying to tell and the collaborations are not just like random. There's a connection there. So the moment that I lose that is, I think, is the moment where it stops becoming fun. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And I'm Trana Winter. That was Backwash. You just heard Polaris Prize winning rapper and producer. So excited to have her on the show. More with her later. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick shout out to all of our old listeners who have rejoined us for this new season and all of our new listeners as well. It feels really good to be back and it's been really lovely to receive your feedback. I'm noticing more and more, especially on Twitter, which is where I spend way too much of my time, people are really starting to express this feeling of hitting a wall in the pandemic on so many levels, emotionally, psychologically, and also productivity-wise. This is something that I feel very profoundly. Thomas, how are you navigating that? Remember when I told you I had a book to write? Yes. Made no progress in a year. Are you serious? We've been in a pandemic. Well, I know. <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, I have all the time. This is perfect. I know I can write this book about addiction, sobriety, and I've just been stalled. I love to like daydream, think of what could be, think of the possibilities, but like, that's not how you write a freaking book. You know, you have to sit down, you have to open the Google doc, you have to like write 2000 words a day. I know, I feel like I fall into a lot of the same traps. Like I'm very caught up in the fantasy of what my life and my career could look like. Like when I was a kid, I imagined I didn't know exactly in what form, but like I definitely imagined like being a star. I imagined doing photo shoots and music videos and going to the Oscars. Like that was the fantasy, but I don't want to do any of the work that's involved in making the fantasy come true. Oh God. Um, it's not that I haven't tried or that, you know, it's just, I'm just thinking about it and not doing it. It's when I do it, I suck. And then when I sit down and I, let's say, write a page, two pages, three pages, whatever, and then I need to send something to the editor, I'm just like confronted to the fact that it's not as great as I think it should be. I don't like not being good at things. I don't. I don't fucking like it. I don't like criticism. I don't like critique. I don't like being told what to do. And again, maybe this is all just me being so in my head and like, this is what comes up on Drag Race all the time. Everyone just getting in their own heads and getting in their own way. But I can't. Saboteur. I love love when Rue uses French words. It's your saboteur, Trina. But the saboteur is real. It is super real. Honestly, but I don't know what the fuck, like, 
what drives my saboteur? Like, why? Why are you trying to destroy me? Like, just leave me alone. Like, go do something else. <laughs> there are many. I mean, in my years of recovery, I've learned that one reason why I kind of don't fully commit is that there was a fear of success, of course, that we, and the fear, the fear of failure is there, but the fear of success to me is also like, what if it worked out? Right. That's really scary to me. What if things work out? Um, there's for sure envy. And I know that in my experience that jealousy and, and envy will manifest, especially towards other gay men. There's something that triggers me. If I see a straight guy having success, I will not be as triggered right. as, as seeing a gay man having success. And that's completely, you know, that's well, shitty it's, and, and it's, it sucks. It is shitty that we've been put in this pit where we're all fighting each other's, we're all fighting each other for these breadcrumbs that are being thrown to us, especially in regards to mainstream media opportunities. And it is a double-edged sword or not a double-edged sword, but there is this duality where it is very true that when one of us succeeds, it does open doors for the rest of us. It is a success for the community at large. But when you think about how a lot of those initiatives at this stage are still largely performative. And so what tends to happen is, let's just say, for example, a major network puts into production a television show about a trans character. This trans character is the lead. There is this thing where the network can be like, well, we've checked that box now. We have our trans show. So when another trans person comes with an idea for another show, it's like that door has closed and that happens. When I really examine it, I'm never jealous of the artist. I'm jealous of the chance that they've been given, which is the chance that I want to be given as well. But do you think if the pandemic had not happened that you would have finished the book? No. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it going to take? What is it going to take for you to be able to actually sit down and do this? So when it has worked, because it has worked in the past, you know, it's just not a permanent thing. Is I need to like get up every day and do it again. So my setup is actually quite beautiful because I lived um, on the third floor of an apartment building and I have this, this really incredible living room window. And in the morning, there's the most beautiful morning light coming to that desk. And I've been every time I wake up and I get up and I just make coffee I'm like, I have a choice today. <laughs> Do I dead scroll Instagram or sit down and write? And I read something online and I think that's the lesson that I need is what is the difference between what is urgent and important? And I, that's kind of what I envy is the people who are able to focus on what is important rather than what is urgent. And I think that's the shift that I need to make on that beautiful desk in the, every morning is focused on what is important and not necessarily what is urgent. Well, I know of at least one person who was able to overcome the creative block last year, and that is our guest today, Backwash. Who's also known as Ashanti Mutinda. I find so much inspiration in just the arc of her journey, um, being a refugee to Canada, being a Black trans rapper in this world, which is very... Um, violent towards, towards black trans people. So here is a clip from the song Redemption. Last year, she released her album, God Has Nothing To Do With This, Leave Him Out Of It. And won the Polaris Prize, which is the biggest prize in Canadian independent music. 
On the album, Backwash draws from her experience living in Zambia, a country in Africa that she left at the age of 17 to live with her brother and sister in BC. But it was in Montreal she found her confidence and voice as an artist. We kicked off this conversation with Backwash, asking her about being a teenager in Zambia. And what kind of teenager were you? I think I was just like a class clown, I guess. Um, I used to sell like bootleg DVDs uh, in my <laughs> teenagers. Yeah, I had like the the burn and stuff like that. So I would go around like selling like like I would make like DVDs for for people like, oh, yeah, you know, I've got this album at home. How much you can either, you know, buy for like. 19 bucks in the store you can give me five bucks and i can bring you the album the next day so like a lot of people knew me for that i remember that's amazing yeah i remember this one time um is this like a family show by the way you can say whatever you want it's not a family show this is, okay. this is like a queer hangout clubhouse so do not hold back do not censor okay okay i remember like um my my uncle died and the story is kind of fucked up. But my uncle died and I was like <laughs> uh, trying to like go through like his stuff because he he had like a lot of books and I liked reading books around that time, especially like scientific books. And um, I found like his old um, you know hard drive and I was like, oh okay, let me just like check what's in it. And his hard drive was like full of like so much porn and i was like i was like oh i've hit the jackpot like uh, like my business argument changed now because i could just like offer like a bunch of porn on like these dvds that people give me and like business was booming for like such a long time <laughs> i never went hungry uh, again they used to call me my guru which means first lady. Yeah, you're like the first lady to like this shit that you're selling. Um, which is funny because I think every like trans person has like uh, these like kind of like memories where um, something is like trans, but you don't recognize it at that point. And I was like, oh, that's a... Okay, I'll take it. Then I grow up, I'm like, oh, wow. Is that as much uh, deeper? No, for sure. I, I mean, like, for me, like, when I was a kid, like, I didn't have the terminology. I didn't know how to identify myself as trans. I didn't know what that meant. Um, but then, you know, all of my bullies kept calling me a girl, and that's what they attacked me for. But they were right, you know, like, they were seeing something that was really clearly there from the very beginning. And I kind of hate that they were right. Yeah, but, you know, going back to, like, childhood... Um, from like first grade to like seventh grade, I was just like heavily bullied. My mom like gave me shoes for school and she told me they were unisex, but they were clearly like girls shoes, like clearly. And people like used to like get confused. Like, oh, is this like, you know, this is like a guy, is this like a girl? I remember like my auntie, um, helping me prepare to like get ready for school and, she like, you know, irons this dress for me. And she's like, here. 
And I'm like, all right, I'll take it. And my mom comes like rushing in the room like, no, no, you know, that's a guy. That's a guy. It's not a girl. So it's just like weird how like, you know, everything works out because I look back in the past and I'm like, oh, wow. You know, like a lot of things started to make more sense. Like how many, how many times have I like seen Mulan and be like, oh, yeah, this is a good movie. What I hear also in your story is your connection to DIY culture. Uh you know, creating these, these DVDs and like making, making things your own way, which I really, really appreciate. So in 2020, you won the Polaris Music Prize. Uh, for people who don't know, it's the most prestigious award in independent Canadian music. People in the media maybe hadn't really heard from you, but people in the Montreal and Ottawa hip hop communities certainly knew who you were. Um, so as a as a, a DIY queer rapper producer, what has been your experience in Canadian hip hop uh, at that point? I mean, I was stagnant for like, you know, years and years because nobody would try to book me. Places would literally just like ignore me or <laughs> tell me to come back in like three months. And after three months comes back, they don't you know even give you the courtesy of having like a, a respectable conversation with you. And I think that's like, I think the hardest part was just like coming to the realization that these people are not really treating you as they would treat uh, somebody else who's in the same shoes, who's not queer or black. When momentum starts building around you, that's when the people who are supposed to book you in the first year come about and they say, oh, hey, we've heard about you. And we want to like book you for this thing, but we're probably going to like really underpay you. Um, so <laughs> you stop playing the regular shows around Montreal, but you're like really underpaid. You also get weirdness in that because there's the idea of am I being tokenized? It's a weird feeling, but you know, at the same time, you need to <laughs> you need to like pay your bills and like get paid. So you 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 know take that on the cheek. Before we get back to the interview with Backwash, I just want to take a moment to reflect on what she just said because I think it's really important. I've been in that situation many times where I'm being tokenized, I'm being asked to do something just because I'm trans, because the person hiring me to do whatever the job is wants me to sort of represent the entire trans community. And I can't do that. I don't think anyone can. And it's not fair to put that on my or any trans person's shoulders. And sometimes I joke that I've never worked with another gay man on a mainstream project because on some of the projects I've worked on, there's only room for one gay man, you know, and like every sort of like identity will be checked. And I think this is what Backwash is speaking of. After the Polaris thing happened, you start getting advice from uh, people that want to see you viable as like a mainstream product. You know, they tell you, oh, you should probably hook up with like these producers and, you know, feature these people on it when um, it doesn't even make sense. Because, um, you know, for me, this is like an expression of, you know, the stories that I'm trying to tell and the collaborations are not just like random people. These are like, you know, 
people that I know and these are like my friends and there's a connection there and there's, you know, chemistry there. So the moment that I lose that is, I think is the moment where it stops becoming fun. In relation to that, you know, like um, getting back to what you were saying about, you know, those early days of the struggle and the not being given the opportunities. And now, you know, you've won this big prize everyone is writing about you. Everyone is talking about you. And I remember the night that you won the prize, like it was so exciting. Everyone was so happy for you. It was such a joyous moment. Um, But of course, inevitably there are haters who tend to usually be straight white men. And I, I noticed you engaging with some of them on Twitter in the days after your win. And it's, it's like these haters sort of have this idea that when a queer person or a marginalized person succeeds, it's because of their identity, which is so ridiculous because often, as you were pointing out, our identity limits our opportunities. <laughs> it's so funny because one of the comments from this person was like, oh, she only won because of her identity, but she deserves to win. Then it's like, what are you, what are you saying? You're not really, like, saying anything. And, like, how much credit do you give to, like, the jurors as well who's, you know, reviewed and listened to, like, so much music throughout the year that they're able to just say, oh, I'll just take this because, you know, there's a queer person on it. And what does that say about all the other queer people on the list who've also released, like, incredible music and... um. I guess people are just mad because it's not like the same like indie indie dude with the guitar, um, you know, who's who's won like the Polaris Prize. But it's just weird that people uh, are able to talk like that. I think it's just a way for them to just like hide their prejudice. And I think it's like they're always just enforcing and maintaining their white male power. So when they don't allow us to perform in their spaces, they're holding on to their power in that way. And then when we do, against all odds, manage to achieve something, their way of trying to minimize that is to be like, oh, they were only given that because, you know, we're living in this like leftist extremism and now everyone's just given a prize for who they are. I tried to track down the first uh, track you posted online that I could find on like a big service. I'm sure you've posted before that. And I found uh, in 2017, the track Stonewall. That I loved. And to me, obviously, that reminded me of the Stonewall Uprising um, and Marsha P. Johnson. And I wanted to know you as a, as a queer, as a black queer artist, who are the queer, the black queer artists who have inspired you? And, and how does it feel now to be in a position where you can also be the one person who can inspire others? Being a queer artist kind of like takes me back to um, when I was making music when I was a teen, because um, there's at a point where, uh, you know, all of our favorite music just came from what the people in the neighborhood were making, you know, and just like sharing sh- stuff like that around. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of that because uh, most of my peers are making like incredible music, but we're part of this like smaller community online. And, um I guess 
Uh, being an inspiration uh, is something I'm still coming to grips with because um, it feels weird saying it, first of all, because uh, uh, I know how flawed I am. And, um, you know, that's like a lot of responsibility uh, to impose on someone. It's kind of like struggling with trying to be the best version of myself. Like even if one person just said you're an inspiration, that's still like a lot of <laughs> responsibility. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The part that really touched me when she said that um, was I recognized the tension between wanting to be seen and heard so much. And then when that actually happens, having a freak out and being like, I don't know if I want to be seen and heard. And that's a real tension. I think for a lot of artists, we want the attention on our work. And then when it turns on ourselves personally, it becomes overwhelming sometimes and scary. And something I've heard really often from queer artists and queer creators is this drive for excellence, which is really good. Like, I think we need queer excellence and black excellence and more of that. But I also think that sometimes we feel that the excellence will make us worthy. Whereas like we're inherently worthy. We don't need to be excellent to be worthy. But I think there is this this weird connection between being excellent, worthy and safe in our society. Uh, so religion is, is obviously a, a, a big theme in the title, uh, but also lyrically on the album and sonically on the song Amen. You rap. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, so I want to know why, why the hypocrisy of the church? Why is this something that, you know, you're clearly opposed to and, and being critical of? Um, only because I grew up heavily in the church and I guess my problem is, um, the power that, uh, the Christian church holds as, you know, an organization in this capitalist society that we're living in. Me and my brother used to go to like different churches and if you're new, they would give you food because we were like hungry. So it's like, oh yeah, I'm new. And like you eat food afterwards. Uh, but I noticed that when I was going to this one church, uh, the the gate the pastor gave a speech about how um, you know people like should like really donate more to the church, and I'm just looking around like you know like I know some of these people, and some of these people are like living in like a lot of poverty. So shouldn't it be the opposite? I know how you live. You're like a pastor. Yeah, 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 living like pretty lavishly. Like your kids go to like private school. Private school is like expensive. 
So next week, they ended up getting like double than what they usually get, like on average, just like that. And I was just like, that's wild. Through all of this, you mentioned that you have your own spiritual practice. So after, you know, the the hurt and the hypocrisy and the violence from the church uh, in Zambia, like how were you able to find your way back to your own uh, beliefs? Yeah. So, um, you know, just went back to my ancestors. I'm, I'm probably not as, you know, I couldn't be like a, to put it in like a D&D terms, <laughs> I couldn't be like a level 15 cleric or something. Um, this was just a process of gathering information based on what I was told growing up. And, you know, African spiritualities, this is something that I actually do find solace and joy in, which is, you know, it, it brings about some very weird interactions. Like, um, I was trying to use like some sample for my uh, tribe and um, I had to buy a CD called, um, I guess, Music of the World or something like that. I had to buy a CD and I found my tribe's uh, traditional ceremony, Guruvamkolo, but I couldn't use it without clearing it from that guy. <laughs> are you kidding me <laughs> for real like i'm not able to like oh, wow. use it without clearing it from that guy which oh, is wow. like so oh, wow. weird i'm also really amazed by just the emotional honesty on this album i think for me in my own artistic whatever you want to call it practice it's often very hard to go to those really vulnerable places where I'm just opening myself up so much. And I really admire the way that you did that on this album. And one of the songs that I related to the most um, is uh, In the Void, um, where you rap about the very real fear that comes with moving through the world as a trans woman. And in that song you rap, I'm tearing out my limbs and I won't make it till the next. I'm walking down the street and I'm anticipating death. And I'm just curious, how do you manage to overcome that fear of violence and take up the space that you deserve to take up in the world? Where does that strength to do that come from? I think it, it's it's like a system of precautions that I have to take when I'm going to and from a place. Um, when I used to do performances, um, as soon as like my business is done there, uh, I, would, I would like, like go directly home, like don't stop anywhere and go directly home. Cause I've, cause there've been times when, you know, trying to go to a show and I get harassed in the street and I'm just like, fuck it. And I, I go back home into the void was actually influenced by, you know, this one time where, um, I was walking home and I was all dressed up and this person is like following me. Until they like tap, you know, my shoulder and I'm like, oh shit, like not now, like, please not now. That's what I was thinking. And, you know, person just asked me for a cigarette mm. and it was just like, oh, sorry, I don't have one. And they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. Thank you. And they left. And, you know, that would have been like a total normal situation if I didn't have like things to be like scared of. I think 
my mind just went to the worst that could happen. And that's kind of like the void. Also on the album, you know, there is the family narrative. You wrote a note um, that accompanies your album um, where it's available on Bandcamp. And you wrote, this album is about my version of forgiveness and things that I need to face in order to reach my version of that. And I was just wondering, what was the forgiveness you were looking for when you set out to make the album? The, the, the definition that people will usually give you for forgiveness is, if you forgive a person, forget everything they've done in the past, everything, you know, it's in the sand, let's just go forward. But it's kind of like probing at that question, trying to paint this idea of, you know, after I've gone through this, am I able to forgive myself as well? And what does forgiveness look like? Is it a situation where I just forget what this person has done? What if I, you know, want to protect myself? If I want to protect myself, it's going to be hard for me to just forget uh, what 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 people have done. And and like, I think like what they usually say is that you know queer people, you know, end up like choosing their family much more because uh, through new connections, I'm able to have like a a new family that um, is able to respect me and. Uh, kind of accept me the way I am. And do you feel like you've been able to find that chosen family through your art? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm grateful for you know the very few people uh, who are able to support me in that. Backwash, thank you so much for coming on Chosen Family today. It was a real honor and privilege. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your. Hope you have a good rest of the day. Our conversation with Backwash was recorded on January 11th. Her album, God Has Nothing to Do with This, Leave Him Out of It, is available now on Bandcamp. You can find it at backwash, B A C K X W A S H dot bandcamp dot com. And follow her on Twitter. She's amazing at Backwash. Back X Wash. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? So my obsession this week is honestly not only my current obsession, but one of the great obsessions of my life, honestly. Um, Even though I've only discovered it recently, it has instantly become one of the most meaningful things I've ever seen. Um, But what is it? (laughs) Well, let me hype it up. It is a TV show called Pen15, um, which is sort of internet code for penis. Some people debate whether the show title is penis or if it's <laughs> Pen15, but I think it's meant to be Pen15. P N15. Exactly. Okay. Basically, it's a coming of age story of two best friends starting the seventh grade in the year 2000. What are you gonna wear tomorrow? I'm thinking like my blue shirt with um, the stripes. Oh my God, so cute. But like, I'm also thinking of wearing a bra. Oh my God. That's like really smart. You need it for your nipples. And you know, I don't like to reveal my age, but that was my time. (laughs) (laughs) To the year. To the year. To To the the exact year. 
And the show was written and created by two incredibly brilliant women, Anna Conkle and Maya Erskine, who not only wrote and created the show, but they also star as the lead best friends who are also named Anna and Maya. In case you haven't figured it out in what I'm describing, Anna and Maya are 33-year-old women <laughs> playing 13-year-olds. Well, that's pretty common in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Not to this Not to this level. extent, yeah. And all of their classmates are played by actual 13-year-olds. It's a coming-of-age story, so they go through everything that we expect kids that age to go through. One of the most brilliant episodes is this episode that is based on America Online instant messaging, <laughs> where they go into the chat rooms, which is something that I did. did that. Like I had AOL, I had my AIM, I had, you know, I was going in the chat rooms. I had a boyfriend in Texas named Matt. <laughs> Who was very they, real to me. And they have these like usernames that they pick. And yeah, they the judge usernames each other. are so funny. So I have three options here for me. Stardust Foeva, S Club 7, which might be taken already, mm -hmm. and Baby Spice 666. They try to behave like adults. And that's the part that is so funny to me. And that's the part that's so relatable because we thought we were so grown up then. You we, know? Think, we think we're so grown we, up Yeah, now. exactly. <laughs> Although, no, I actually feel less grown up now than I felt back then. But what makes the show so special is the fact that Maya and Anna, the real women, get to revisit those experiences and relive them with the perspective that they have on life now as grown women. Like, can you imagine if you got the chance to go back and not relive it in the way that you could change what happened, but that you could relive it to be able to better process what the fuck actually happened to you during those years. And to me, that's what makes this show so moving. So that's my obsession. I cannot recommend it more highly. Uh, so I, I watched a show a few weeks ago. You recommended it to me. Um, and at the time I was like, this is the best show I've seen in years. It's so good. But unfortunately... Another show surpassed this. Surpassed it? Okay, I'm assuming this is your obsession, so let us know. What is your obsession this week? My obsession this week is another TV show um, coming from the UK. It's a Sin by the queer as folk creator Russell T. Davis. Um, so It's a Sin is set in London. It's, it, it's over a decade in the 80s, from 81 to 91. We follow a chosen family, like a literal chosen family that lives in a a loft called the Ping Palace. And you and I have performed. Crystal Palace. We've performed at a loft called Crystal Palace. The, the core of the show is the AIDS crisis. So AIDS is just hitting London in the early 80s. There's a lot of disinformation. People are scared. They don't know how, they, how people are catching it. They don't know if it's only homosexual men. I had this cough and it stopped. Look at me. Am I coughing? No. I'm a lot better than I was. So what did the doctor say? They gave me this questionnaire, and I was like, what's this for? He said, it's for people like you. <clears throat> the, it's so thoroughly researched, and we learn so much about how that time was experienced by gay men, mostly because Russell T. Davis lived a time. He went, he was in his early 20s and in the 80s. He went to Oxford at the time. He lived in London at the time. Um, and he had a best friend who was extremely involved in organizing the response. She's played by Lydia West. What are you, English and drama? Yeah, first year. 
I'm Richie, follow me. And I'm Jill. Do you want to meet him then? Ash? I'm not, I wasn't, I was just literally looking. So you're not gay then? No! Oh my god, no! And it's just so moving to see this woman uh, surrounded by gay men, but she is the one holding the whole chosen family together. She's the one helping out. She's Brittany. She, <laughs> she's on the front line. Um, and the characters are just so endearing. Of course, the music and the art direction is, you know, phenomenal. So what do you relate to the most? Like what, what moves you the most about it? <sighs> I watched it with my partner and I think to me, it was seeing myself in these characters who are in their early 20s, full of dreams. And there's so many weird echoes to what we're going through now, this weird disease that's taking over. Did and it I, feel heavy watching it? It's not heavy so much as really profound. Um, it really stayed with me. And I think the creator just has this way of showing gay life and queer life in a way that's... Um, important, but also that everyone can relate. It's, as you said, a triumph. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honestly really, really excited to watch it. I really can't wait. Era-defining television. You get it's it on Chosen Family. Now. The golden age. <laughs> See, doesn't this help be inspired? Doesn't it make you want to at least it, try to create yeah, it did. something it really like did. this? It really did. It really did. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We're so happy that you're here. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with someone. Uh, we want uh, as many people to join our chosen family for this season. And on this note, let's go with the credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalian Dongo is our contributing producer. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Narani is the executive producer. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. And we are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. And if you haven't already, please, please, please join us on our Instagram page at Chosen Family Show, where we'll be doing Instagram lives. You can check out our posts, which are really more of a mood board. I feel like a YouTuber, but really, guys, subscribe, like and share. Share. Honestly, if you enjoyed this conversation, we need you to share. Sharing is caring. And of course, you can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.